Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he likes to be the king. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, somebody called me today. They sneezed and then just hung right up. And I gotta say, I'm getting really sick of all these cold calls. Matt, Matt, I, I knew that one. I could predict that punchline before you got there. And oh. That's rare for me, so I'm proud of myself. Would you say that you saw that punchline coming right at you? No, there's a double punchline. Oh, curveball. Okay. You're clever. welcome. Uh, clever. That, that was excellent. Uh, next, he likes to be the king maker. That's Dana Roach. Uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and this is as good a time as any to point out that we have four different magic cards with chicken in the title and none that mention turkey. So if we need something to get mad at the Rose Committee about this week, I think I know exactly what we should get angry about. <laughs> oh, dang. Deep cut there, Dana. What? Also, turkey, slightly overrated as a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, you, no, you were a take. monster. I... Mm. <laughs> We are in rare form this episode. Anyway, this is the EDH Rec cast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, in addition to making hot takes about the uh, different Thanksgiving editables, apparently we are going to be giving all that data a little bit more context. Matt, if you can bear to talk to me at all this episode, what's it, what is it that we're talking about this I, week? I, you have hurt me so deep, but this week on the podcast, <laughs> We are going to talk about the most majestic of all mechanics. Um, that is the monarch mechanic for Commander. That we are. We want to take a look at the data for the cards that provide the monarch ability in the games of Magic that we play. Because with Commander Legends, the number of cards that have the monarch mechanic on them has like nearly doubled. And so we kind of want to see if we can tell what's going to happen with the data around them and how that might affect games of EDH going forward. But before we get there, we want to give a huge thank you to Josh LeQuay and the folks at the Command Zone podcast who handle all of the post-production work on our podcast here. It is excellent work. So thank you guys so much for making the show look as awesome as it does. And of course, we want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors as well. The EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Card Kingdom is my personal go-to resource for buying and selling cards, so that's where I'll be getting the Commander's Legends singles I need here in the next couple weeks. Uh, our other sponsor, TCG Player, has a ridiculously deep inventory as well, so if there's a card you want, maybe something inspired by our Challenge the Stats segment, TCG Player definitely has it. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the appropriate uh, vendor link beneath the card you've selected. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you would prefer to partner with the podcast directly, um, you can go to patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have all sorts of different tiers on our Patreon page. Whether you want to just join the Discord or you want to submit some challenger stats for us each week, we have a tier available for you to do that. And we appreciate all of your support. Our patrons are amazing. Our Discord community is thriving. And I got to say, the Dad Joke channel and the pets. I think the pets is what really, it, it sold me on that. It's real good. Uh, it's it is real pretty good. great. But you can just head to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast to join. And we also have a level of patronage where we just shout out somebody who just joined onto our patrons. So William Korb, thank you so much for joining and supporting us over at Patreon. Yes, thank you, William, and thanks to all our Patreon supporters. It's a really big deal to have you reach out there and support the show. And if everybody likes the topic that we're going to talk about this week, going over the Monarch mechanic, and you want to take the conversation a little bit further and maybe do some homework on it, you can head to edhwiki.com. It is an awesome Wikipedia-style page all set up, completely devoted to the Commander format. Whether you want to look up some more information, some hot takes on the Monarch mechanic, or you want to dive into you know aggro decks or control decks or a different combo, there's all sorts of different pages. It's a wiki for crying out loud. You can edit the page a little <laughs> bit if you have some insight you would like to add. It is fully editable and it's something that is done by the community. So head over to edhwiki.com and check out all of the amazing resources that are over there as well. Indeed. All right, guys, let's get to it now. We are going to talk about the Monarch mechanic in Games of Commander. So the monarchy is, of course, just that little, not quite emblem, but it's a thing that you get that whenever, you know, it's at your end step, you can draw a card. It's a really cool thing, and it can be taken from you with, you know, whenever an opponent deals combat damage to you. Not regular damage to you, but like via combat. So like when Matt attacks me, which he always manages to do, which is often... 
a perfectly fine thing. It is often. It is often. And I don't hold a grudge against you at all for it, I promise. So whenever Matt attacks me, he can take the monarchy. Um, and that would let him draw cards on the end step. And so you see this on different cards like Throne of the Black Rose, for example. It enters the battlefield and it makes you the monarch. So you can also get the monarchy that way. And that is, in fact, what you need to do to introduce the monarch mechanic into the game. And these cards are pretty cool. It's a really interesting mechanic. But we kind of wanted to take a look at the, uh, you know, the numbers behind them. Of course, before we do that, I kind of want to ask you guys about like what your relationship is with the monarch mechanic. For example, do you use any monarch cards in your own personal decks? Dana? Um, I currently do. I use the card you mentioned, actually, Throne of the Black Rose in my Gliss the Traitor Death Touch deck. Um, it's not part of the specific plan of the deck necessarily. It's just it happens to be a useful card and the monarch is fun. So if they're both on one card, uh, you know, Creature with Death Touch that makes for a good blocker, and the Monarch is a fun mechanic to have. The creature protects it. The entire deck kind of protects me having it. It just kind of works out that way. So it's not necessarily a, a plan that the deck is supposed to do Monarch things. It just so happens that card fits the deck really well. So sometimes we throw the Monarch into the game just to kind of mix it up. Gotcha. And Matt, what about you? Any king-making cards in your own decks? or I've definitely been known to cast a, a Monarch card or two in my day. Um, Palace Jailer is one of my favorites. It's kind of a, a removal spell as long as you are the Monarch, kind of an Oblivion Ring type of exile effect. Palace Jailer is great. I've also cast several Regal Behemoths in my day. Um, mm. Nice to just double your mana when you want to cast a lot of big spells in any given turn. So I definitely... Uh, do and have and will continue to uh, use Monarch cards in, in, in most of my decks. In, in most of them. So that's most. kind of the distinction. For, that's the distinction for me. I feel like I don't run into it really all that often. And when looking through some of the numbers, as we'll get to soon, it does feel a little bit sort of niche with the exception of a really obvious commander. Again, we'll get to that soon. Um, but I'm just kind of curious why you guys think that might be. Like, what do you guys see the monarchy sort of doing to games? Like, one of the cool things about this mechanic is that it encourages combat between players. Again, Matt, you need to stop attacking me as often as you do, but I understand it. Because, like, a monarchy... Not, not gonna... <laughs> a monarchy ability is really nice because, it, like, if you want the card advantage, you should attack an opponent. Um, but do you guys see it encourage combat a whole lot? Or, by contrast, do you sometimes see a dynamic where it's like, one person gets it and then holds on to it forever. Like, what is your experience seeing the monarchy actually play out in commander games? Um, I think it plays out different in commander games than it did when it was introduced back in the conspiracy draft environment. Um, mm. And I think that's in part because of the power level of the two environments. And I would guess that's probably true um, in Commander Legends as well. When you're looking at a limited draft environment like that, and people are playing with decks they you know put together out of six packs or however many it winds up being um, in a limited time frame, your synergies are way more limited. The power of the cards in the deck tend to be way more limited. So the impact of drawing a single card off the Monarch is way stronger. And um, so you see a lot more like people making big plays trying to get that one card. I think in Commander, um, where you're playing with, you know, the strongest 20,000 cards ever printed, um, I think the impact of it in terms of how it affects the game drawing that one card isn't quite what it is in those draft environments. So I think you see people making crazy reckless plays way less in Commander than they would have in those <laughs> draft environments where everyone's just like, I'm swinging it all in to get that Monarch because that one card is huge. I think you don't quite get that like absolute chaos you get in the draft environment. See, I, I love those games of Commander where that Absolutely. actually happens, though. Uh, yeah. Anything that, I mean, go figure, anything that encourages creature combat, I'm going to be supportive of. So big shocker there, I know. But I, I love what Monarch brings to the Commander format, and it's not directly tied to the actual cards. Like, you might have, like, some nominal effect. But introducing Monarch to a game, depending on the pod, can be one of the most fun things, if you're me, or if you're Dana, like, one of the most frustrating things, because you do <laughs> see people you know, fighting and bickering over that. And it's, I I love those types of games where it brings a lot to any given game. And like, like you were asking, Joy, do you see one person have it or do you see a bunch of people fight over it? It's so pod dependent, but finding the yeah. right mm -hmm. pod for Monarch to just, it's a badge of honor almost. Those games are some of the most fun games that I've ever been able to play in. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I, it was sort of thrown out, or at least and sometimes it's a recurring topic in conversation among the uh, the commander internet, as it were, um, that sometimes folks wish that the monarchy was like a natural rule within the game, that mm. there could be a way that you introduce it without having to rely on the cards. Um, and, and now that we are getting more monarchy cards, I almost wonder if like... We don't need that as an idea as much. I'm not really phrasing this very well, but like I also enjoy the monarchy, but I feel like we've got more tools to actually like actually put it into the games. At the same time, I am sometimes a little bit skeptical of like, do I need to fight over the monarchy sometimes? Because sometimes I cast a rich card's expertise for 20 and I look at the monarchy and I'm like, eh. You know, take it or leave it. No, that's that's definitely a good I mean, point. I know I know Shivam Bhatt is a big fan of house ruling the monarch in at the beginning of every game. Um, mm-hmm. If that's something that your playgroup wants to do, I think that's a fine house rule. I don't think you necessarily need to anymore now that Commander Legends is providing yeah. a lot more cards that bring monarch into the game. And I think, Joey, that's one reason you may not have seen the monarch in too many games because there just weren't a ton of cards in general that had monarch tied to them. So I think that problem might be alleviated a little bit now that there is a whole other batch of cards specifically centered around monarch. Well, there's, there's also the factor that it's not the kind of thing you can necessarily really build around. Like if there's a, you know, Exalted, for example, like you could build a deck full of Exalted creatures because there's some synergy there in, you know, having creatures buff the one that's attacking. You could build your deck around a bunch of stuff that does that. You really can't do that with a Monarch. Um, number one, I'm not sure the value is there. Again, off building a whole deck around drawing one card. Um, but number two, it doesn't stack or anything either. So that, like, if you've got 25 different things that give you the Monarch in your deck, I'm not sure how much utility that provides. Sure. It doesn't necessarily add to the play experience either. So I, I, I think the best you can really hope for with it is everyone in the pod has one or two cards in their deck that happen to do Monarch stuff because the cards are pretty decent anyway. And it just gets thrown into the game and you see what happens. Yeah. So let's actually, we sort of talked around all of these Monarch cards, but let's actually get to some examples. We pulled up a little bit of data about the most popular cards that use the Monarch mechanic um, and sort of where their numbers fall in games of EDH. And we just kind of like want to run through some of those numbers. Dana, you mentioned, I think just a bit ago, like decks that are dedicated to the monarchy. Let's jump right in real quick with Queen Marchesa, who is probably the name on everyone's lips right now. Long may she reign. She is the Mardu commander. I think the most popular Mardu commander who introduces the monarchy to the game. And if she ever loses it, she can create these black assassin creature tokens to steal it back. There are 2,600 Queen Marchesa decks and she has just tons of monarchy abilities. In fact, when we looked through the data, here turns out that she also plays an average of about five cards that introduce the monarchy to the game in her decks as well even though she naturally does that herself so beyond combat she's got tons of ways to make sure that she can get back the crown whenever she she needs to so you see a bunch of cards like knights of the black rose in her list and palace jailer matt like you mentioned or skyline despot is another one the dragon that makes more dragons if you are the monarch um and this is a very very popular commander for sure and it's also kind of cool to see her show up sometimes in you know the 99 of other decks for example she can be a little bit popular in decks like uh, jarina kudro for example but outside of queen marchesa i don't know what are the numbers looking like there because i mean marchesa is really really popular but looking at the numbers there it feels like things get a bit more niche matt take us to the next most popular monarchy card what are we seeing so regal behemoth is the most played card in the 99 outside of i should say queen marchesa and regal behemoth is is a pretty decent card it's four green green for a i believe it's been uh, updated Oracle text to be a dinosaur now, um, mm-hmm. but it's a 5-5 five, five with Trample. When it enters the battlefield, you become the Monarch, and whenever you tap a land for mana while you are the Monarch, you add one mana of any color to your mana pool. So it's essentially a mana doubler as long as you are the Monarch. Uh, currently being played in 4,600 decks, only 2% of all green decks, um, and it seems to get pretty kind of shoehorned into Dinosaur Tribal since it does have that dinosaur creature type now. Um, it's in over a thousand Gishath decks, a bunch of Zakama decks, and then Nikia, actually, the uh, legendary Gruul uh, commander, does see a, a decent amount of play for Regal Behemoth. But after that, there aren't a lot of decks playing Regal Behemoth anymore. This is one that I played, I know, in my Angry Omnath deck, and it did you know a fairly good job there. But it, it does kind of stink to see it kind of plummet so far as far as commanders that are playing it. 
Right. I think that this is a really, like this doubles your mana, but it, it doubles your mana and it draws you a card. Like that's really cool. But even then it's still not seeing a ton of play really, which is like a bit of a head scratcher. Well, I think this is probably the kind of thing we'll see a little bit with most of these cards we are going to talk about here. They're cards that have some utility in the card itself. And the monarch ability is just kind of that little bit of, of turkey gravy on your mashed potatoes that pushes it over the top <laughs> to, to stay on the Thanksgiving theme. I, turkey gravy, super on board with that one. That's not overrated at all. Uh, but yeah, no, I just, I do like, I've tried to build some mono green snoppy stuff myself and I feel like I'm always drawn to this card, but it does always uh, seem to also get cut too. And frankly, that's sometimes the case for some of the other cards that we see here. Like the next most popular uh, monarchy card is, you know, a thousand decks less popular than the regal behemoth that we just talked about. That's that palace jailer, Matt, one of your favorites, the thing that oblivion rings a creature until you stop being the monarch and it makes you the monarch when it enters the battlefield. This is a really cool one because it's not quite like oblivion ring where if you get rid of the palace jailer, the exiled things come back. They actually have to take the monarchy from you uh -huh. in order to get the thing back which is very very tricky especially if you can blink this and that type of utility sounds phenomenal but despite all that it's in about 3400 decks which that that's really not a whole lot i think it sounds like a lot but but it's not a whole lot like the only deck that it actually shows up in with any like appreciable degree of popularity is Winota, Joiner of Forces. It doesn't really have a high deck count in really any other commander. And that's like kind of interesting for a really cool card that puts stuff in jail, I guess. I don't know. I'm just routinely surprised that these things that are like cantrips and that introduce this fun mechanic don't always show up all that popular. And it does just kind of make me worry a little bit that like the card advantage they produce isn't enough sometimes maybe. It, well, and Palace Jailer to me is is a card that, like you said, it, it, you can flicker it. It should be played in so many more decks. Um, <laughs> the the amount of people that have misread Palace Jailer and I'll I'll exile a creature and they kill it in response, and then I I kind of sit there and like, okay, well you don't get your creature back. Um, those types of moments are are there's so many of them. And Palace Jailer, man, it's. It does a lot. If, if Oblivion Ring drew you a card at the end of your turn when it entered the battlefield, it would definitely cost, you know, this exact mana cost, two in, in white, white. Um, <laughs> it's a great card. There's a lot of utility to it. I'm surprised that Palace Jailer doesn't see more play, actually. Yeah, very, very much. Uh, let's go through a couple more. Dana, what are we seeing next? Uh, next, we have Throne of the High City. Um, that's a land. It's in... <laughs> 3,400 decks, which is 1% of the decks that are able to run it. Um, aside from Marchesa, the only significant play is in 76 Traxos decks and 75 Zancha decks. So this is a land, um, like we said, you can tap it for colorless mana and it comes into play untapped, which is relatively important to some people. And you can spend four mana and sacrifice it and you become the monarch. So that either introduces the monarch to the game or takes it away from somebody who currently has it. Um, yeah, this one I'm, I'm a little surprised too, since it can go literally anywhere if you're playing mono white, mono red, boros, or anything where you really need to have that option to, um, you know, get that card draw at the end of the turn. There's not much opportunity cost in running this. It goes in literally any deck. There's plenty of decks that have the ability to recur the land if they want to. I, I thought this one would actually perhaps even be number one. Yeah, especially usually we see that with lands that can go sort of anywhere. But th I think that this is kind of highlighting that the monarchy is it, in games of EDH. It either is a lot harder to keep than people think or people think that it is harder to keep than it is. It's got to be one of those two things where people are maybe a little bit too afraid to introduce this thing that might not always be one sided. And if it gets away from them and they're not ever able to get it back, that they're just it's not the kind of thing that they want to necessarily put into their decks. So it does kind of make me uh, just a little bit curious, but Throne of the High City in particular of the utility lands that is starting to become a very, very crowded field. And there are a lot of lands that can draw you cards that aren't necessarily as risky nowadays, too. I mean, there, there are ones that just will draw you the card. Without having to deal right. with the Monarch, you can just spend the mana. And I guess you'd have to do it every single turn. Um, but then you don't have to run that risk of, you know, the Kaikar player across the table from you or the Talran player who has a swarm of flyers 
who can definitely get in and take that monarch from you probably and then has that swarm still there to block to keep someone from taking it away i think that's mm -hmm. probably what scares people away is the uncertainty of who you're going to be facing and how easy it may possibly be for you to basically give them a frexian arena that they're never going to get rid of right exactly all right uh matt what else are we seeing let's just run through a couple more of these monarch cards to see where their numbers are in the format right now so we've got skyline despot and Marchesa's Decree, which are the, the other two cards that we're seeing get play in a decent amount of decks. Skyline Despot is the, the big flying seven drop dragon. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, if you are still the monarch, uh, you get a 5-5 five, five dragon creature token. Um, and then Marchesa's Decree, uh, it, it's kind of a, a pillow forty punisher type of card. Uh, it, it's a four man enchantment that when it enters the battlefield, uh, you become the monarch. And then whenever somebody attacks you or a planeswalker you control, uh, its controller takes one or loses one life, I should say. Um, both of them are played in three thousand ish decks, not a whole lot really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like Skyline Despot shows up occasionally in like the Ur Dragon, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that Marchesa's Degree shows up in a lot of forced combat decks. Well, I say a lot. Some of the forced combat decks, because not all of them include black. So like Thantis, the War Weaver, really, really likes this one. And Xantra also really seems to like them. Uh, you've got about like half of Thantis decks and a quarter of Xantra decks are playing them respectively there. Um, but aside from that, you don't really see it showing up too much. So it does kind of, you know, make me wonder, looking overall this, it does really feel like the players who are using monarchy cards really feel like they have to have a very good reason to do so. Like the Marchesa's Decree, for example, Thantis is a commander that they'll want to use to make everyone attack, but it's it disincentivized to attack us. But like attacking is a plan. The monarchy might be used to incentivize combat between other people in that case, as opposed to just playing it in a regular old Jund deck, because in that case, it's not tied into the strategy as generically, um, for a generic sort of Jund strategy, as it would be to Thantis's very dedicated strategy. It does really feel like there's a lot of intentional usage for all of the monarchy cards as it currently stands right now. And I think something like Keeper the Keys, it, it being a human rogue mutant, uh, that's a card I think will get a little bit more love now that rogues in uh, Zendikar Resurgent have gotten quite mm -hmm. the boon. I know a lot of people are throwing that card around. We'll see if its numbers go up to reflect that. But that is something that I've seen people excited about playing here in the, the near slash, you know, present <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really great one because that can make your stuff unblockable if you keep the monarchy. Like, I guess that's another good question. Are there any other monarchy cards that you're surprised aren't to see be more popular? Uh, just looking through the ones that we just saw, are there any others that you're shocked aren't among that list? Uh, you know, the one I mentioned, Thorn of the Black Rose, which has also, at least in the past, been a popper all-star, um, mm -hmm. in particular because it does do a good job protecting the monarch because it, it, it is a body with death touch. So you play Thorn of the Black Rose, you get the, the monarch, you draw your card into turn, and now you have this 1-3 death touch creature sitting there making you a very unattractive target. Um, and it also then screws kind of the math up. So you have the person who has to determine, okay, do I want to swing through and lose a creature and maybe get the monarch? But how much have I lost in doing that because I'm going to lose him into the death touch creature and I'll need something else that's actually going to get through, which then makes me vulnerable for the person after me to come swing in to take it. Um, so that's when things get interesting. I think it's a card that really does make people have to think about what they want to do. I just would think that card would have shown up in more decks, but it's it's not um, in our top five, at least. Yeah, no, like after that top five, it really drops down to they don't show up over more than, none of the monarchy cards show up in more than 2,000 decks. And for reference, that's about the same popularity as like the Night Tribal Land training grounds, for example. Um, sorry, tournament grounds, not training grounds. Uh, so like that, very obscure. There's not a whole lot. Uh, like Protector of the Crown is another one that I like because it redirects damage to itself. So it can kind of keep you an extra step in keeping the monarchy. I feel like a lot of those are pretty cool, but their numbers just really aren't all that supported, which is kind of interesting. And Matt, going back to something that you said at the top of the show, I think you're right that it really does play into the density of monarchy cards that we have available to us. Which sort of leads us into the second half of the show here. We are getting a whole new influx of monarchy cards with the release of Commander Legends. You know, before Commander Legends, there were 17 total cards that had the monarchy ability on them. And now after Commander Legends, there are going to be 31. And that might retroactively change some of the numbers on the cards we just discussed. 
or at least it has the potential to, might be kind of fun. So we should probably take a look at those new monarchy cards and see where they might fall and which ones are worth playing and such. So that will be fun when we get to the second half of the show. But before we do that, what we're going to do is take a quick break and talk about challenging some stats. It's one of our favorite segments here on the show because there's a lot of data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think the cards are seeing too much play and sometimes they're seeing too little play. So we like to challenge those stats here. Dana, how about you start us off this week? All right, so I, I'm excited for this one. This was a card I, I've wanted to do for a few weeks, but I wanted to get a chance to cast it first on our stream on Twitch TV slash EDHRECcast in a game <laughs> before I challenged the stats in this card. And I got right. to do that last week. And the card is Simulacrum. It's an instant from Alpha that hasn't seen printing since 4th edition. Um, but it's a cheap common. You can pick it up for, for 20 cents. Um, the, the problem here is what Simulacrum says on the card and what its Oracle text says aren't really remotely related at all. So what? I, I think people don't play it because they don't know what it actually does. What the card says is all damage to you done so far this turn is retroactively applied to target creature you control and the further damage is treated normally. So if someone hits you for 20, you play Simulacrum, that damage is instead done to one of your creatures, presumably killing it, and you don't take that damage. <clears throat> um, you know, it, that makes it kind of a bad fog for the most part. And I think if you want to do that, there's ways to run actual fogs in, in black that don't kill your creature. There's a couple of them. Um, but that's not what the card does. What the Oracle text says is you gain life equal to the damage dealt to you this turn. Simulacrum deals damage to a creature you control equal to the damage dealt to you this turn. You gain life. So if you are playing a commander that cares about gaining life, this card does that. So if someone hits you um, for 20 damage and you play Simulacrum and you happen to be playing something like Vito, the Dusk Rose, <laughs> that deals damage to an opponent based on the life you gain, for this two mana, you can dome somebody for 20. In addition to then, you know, not taking the, the damage yourself. It's only in 78 decks on EDH Rec, and it definitely should be in more decks that care about life gain. And I would wager the reason it isn't is because the card doesn't say it gains you life. What it says it does and what it actually does aren't the same thing. It's, it's a testament to the obscurity of this card that you cast it against us on our stream during actual gameplay, and I still don't know what this card I is. I was so happy. I was so happy that I got <laughs> to cast it against you guys. That was the highlight of that game for me. <laughs> Well, it's great because you say, oh, I'll play Simulacrum. My brain is just like Solemn Simulacrum. That's a different thing. So uh, I'm still just completely turned around by this m completely obscure card. Dana, you've got a gift for finding it, the most <laughs> out there cards imaginable for it, the challenge. And, and I will say this. Thank you, Joey. But it's not just that it's <laughs> obscure. Like It's legitimately a really good card if your deck does life gain stuff. So um, it should be in more than those 78 decks. And take a look at it. All right. Uh, Matt, that's been a lot of um, old card that we don't know what it even does. Do you have something maybe a little bit newer uh, to talk about for your challenge this week? That way I can sort of, I don't know, re reorientate where my brain is supposed to be. I, I certainly can. It, it is a card that isn't getting too much play, a little bit more than, than Dana's pick. It's about 250 or so decks right now. Uh, but Spiteful Prankster is the card that I'm going to talk about. And in case you haven't heard about it, um, it did come out in Jumpstart, uh, so there's not a ton of them running around currently. Hopefully that gets to expand out soon. But I'm looking at it specifically in Judith the Scourge Diva decks, or just any deck really that likes to sacrifice a lot of its own creatures. Um, so Judith the Scourge Diva is the Rakdos uh, legendary creature uh, where the key ability is whenever you, a non-token creature you control dies, Judith deals one damage to any target, well, that's a pretty great ability. You get to ping stuff down. So Spiteful Prankster is only being played in 28% of Judith decks since Jumpstart has come out. And Spiteful Prankster is just kind of an extra copy of that Judith ability. Uh, so for two and a red, you get a 3-2 Devil creature. And as long as it's your turn, Spiteful Prankster has First Strike. It's fine and, and dandy. But whenever another creature dies, Spiteful Prankster deals one damage to target creature or planeswalker. So you are able to control the board super well with Spiteful Prankster. The nice thing is, too, it's kind of like a Mayhem Devil, where whenever 
as some, a creature is sacrificed, you get to deal one damage to any target. Spiteful Prankster is a great copy of Redundancy, where if another creature dies, say Joey likes to sacrifice a lot of creatures mm. in his Sir Conrad deck, for example, um, Spiteful mm -hmm. Prankster is going to ping Joey or a Planeswalker somebody else controls uh, just for one damage every time that happens. Or say you're playing against just a, in general Aristocrats style deck. This is going to do quite a bit of work in addition to, oh yeah, it still counts your creatures dying as well. So if you need extra copies of uh, Goblin Bombardment type of effect or a Zulaport Cutthroat, this is a great way to get just an extra copy of that. It's a good attacker because it does have first strike. But all those little effects, you can build a deck. You don't even need to attack with how many types of effects you have uh, just in pinging people whenever they sacrifice, whenever something dies. It is pretty powerful. Only 28% of Judith, the Scourge Diva deck specifically right now. I think that number should be a lot higher and just the, the amount of decks in general. Like I said, only about 250 decks currently. If you want an extra copy of this effect, definitely need to give this a look. Yeah, that's really one of those cards that gets overlooked because it is kind of obscure in Jumpstart, which also we just didn't have a ton of access to. So really great thing for you to let people know about when you get awesome triggers off of your own creatures dying or being sacrificed. It is the most beautiful thing in the world. So Matt, I fully support this challenge in every single possible. But way. also it gets other players creatures dying. That is <laughs> that's the part. It's a great anti Joey card. So if you want to watch us over at twitch.tv slash EDH recast <laughs> and see Joy Joey just foibled. Um, it might be because foibled. of uh, foibled. It is a word. At least it <laughs> no, is. No, right I know. <laughs> it's just, it's a, I'm, it's a great, great language. And, and frankly, it's, it's quaint of you to think that I might not be employing <laughs> this very same type of strategy myself. I'm quite the aristocrat after all. I Spiteful deign to seems... think of you correcting me and outdoing me. On, <laughs> it's on it's because I said the turkey thing. It's because I've said it the is, turkey It thing, is, it right? is purely <laughs> because you said you didn't like turkey. That's only what a, a, you are kind of a turkey by saying that. <gasps> How dare you? I'm just going to move now to my challenge. I can't believe it. All right. So we are going to move to my challenge now. And this comes to us from one of our patrons. That is RJ the Grim. He wanted to put forward the card Woodland Champion, a pretty obscure one from M20 and specifically in the context of a Gave Guru of Spores deck. So that's, of course, the Abzan commander that can, you know, remove tokens, make tokens, remove counters, make tokens and a whole bunch of tokens and stuff. It, it's basically a, a an obs on combo engine nine times out of ten because of just how easy it is to manipulate counters and tokens like that. So it's a really well-established deck that has sort of some pretty optimized engines in it already, which makes it pretty difficult to challenge cards for, but RJ's got a pretty interesting choice here. The card is Woodland Championed, a two-mana 2-2 two -two elf scout that says whenever one or more tokens enter the battlefield under your control, you put that many plus one counters on Woodland Champion. And the cool synergy here with Gave is that whenever you remove a plus one counter from something to make a token with Gave's ability, that will then put a plus one counter onto the Woodland Champion, which then gives Gave exactly the right type of fuel that he needs to continue you know, taking counters off of something to make another token, which then replenishes the Woodland Champion. This is a very cheap card, uh, mana cost wise, for you to have one more kind of cool piece in the Gave's many, many different engines. Most of his combo pieces, like Catharis Crusade, for example, can also cost like five mana. So having a small creature here that is maybe a little bit lesser known to your opponents can be a really cool way to kind of subvert people's expectations with what they think they are usually going to see in a Gave deck. And it can be very powerful to help supplement the different pieces of Gabe's different engines there. So RJ the Grim, this is an awesome challenge from you. Also, I really appreciate the reference to Sir Conrad the Grim in your name there. That makes me doubly happy. I don't know if it was intentional, but maybe he's just got a very grim outlook on life. No, it was absolutely intentional because Conrad's the best. Uh, remember the aristocrats conversation we were just having? We were just it's aristocrats. R RJ, aristocrats you let us know in, in Discord because you are a patron over at <laughs> patreon.com slash EDH Retcast. Uh, you let us know in this Discord if it was intentional because of Sir Conrad. There are some who call him grim. Anyway, let's move now back to our main topic. Let's get to talking again about the kingly, the queenly, the monarchy mechanic here, because there are a bunch of new monarch cards coming out in Commander Legends. We are nearly doubling the number of cards that have the monarchy ability. So let's go through some of them and see, basically, I kind of want to get your guys to help me feel out where you think these will land in the format and what you think they might do if these cards are still going to be like as relegated to the niche 
niche status that we saw many of the other monarchy cards occupying, or if they might make the mechanic kind of boom a little bit more and we'll see it more frequently in games of Commander. Uh, the first cards that we're going to tackle here are actually kind of a big cycle. Dana, do you want to take us through a couple of them? Sure. Um, we have the Court Cycle, which are a cycle of um, non-aura enchantments, uh, one in each color. So white has Court of Grace for two white-white, and these all function the same way in that when they come into play, enter the battlefield, you become the monarch. And it's not a cast trigger either, so these are blinkable if your deck does that kind of thing to, to re-get you the monarch um, on blink. Mm-hmm. Uh, Court of Grace, the white ones, is at the beginning of your upkeep, create a 1-1 one, one white spirit creature token with flying and if you're the monarch create a 4-4 white angel creature token with flying instead and they all tend to work that way as well they have a static ability that triggers the thing of your upkeep for the most part and if you're the monarch that triggered ability is better than than what the ability is if you're not the monarch so um i think these are a little more attractive maybe than the original cycle of monarch cards in that they do a thing that's pretty useful and it gets even more useful if you can protect that monarch ability. Yeah, so the different abilities that we've got here, the white one, as you mentioned, it can create a spirit token, or if you're the monarch, it creates an angel token. The blue one can mill some cards, like two cards, but if you're the monarch, it mills 10 instead. The black one looks like uh, each opponent will lose three life unless they discard a card, but if you're the monarch, instead they lose six life unless they discard two cards, which is really, really mean. The red one is five mana, does two damage to any target, but if you're the monarch, it deals seven instead. And then the green one can let you play a land from your hand. But if you're the monarch, you can play a creature or land uh, from your hand for free instead. So a whole bunch of different benefits there. I'm kind of like feeling like these still fit into a bit of niche status. Personally, I don't know that these feel like they can go generally anywhere. Um, I tend to agree with that, but I think they still have some utility. Um, I think they're a little more broad, perhaps, in the first group of monarch cards we had court of grace for example there's a whole lot of things in white that benefit from making a one one spirit creature token you know a bunch of different tasa variants care about tokens regnan krav cares about making tokens that are easily sacrificable a lot of different aristocrat variants um so having something that makes you a token consistently without you having to dump mana in it tends to be pretty useful Making an angel is pretty useful for a lot of different decks as well. And if you get the monarch as a bonus, that's pretty nice too. So I think Court of Grace in particular is the one that's probably the most broadly beneficial. There's a lot of decks that want to use that. Compared to uh, Court of Cunning, for example, um, if you're not playing a mill deck that has a plan for milling people's cards, this one's genuinely bad, I think, in that... (laughs) Milling cards just willy-nilly is like drawing people cards in plenty of situations. Um, Joey, for example, I don't want to be milling you without a plan on how to deal with those cards. So um, Court of Cunning is kind of the opposite, I think, of Court of Grace. Court of Grace, there's a lot of decks where it's just universally useful. Court of Cunning is not universally useful. It's genuinely dangerous in a whole bunch of decks. Well, I I still would kind of argue that maybe Court of Cunning, you probably might not still, you still might not want to play that in a dedicated mill deck because that is not the type of strategy that is well suited to, you know, engage in combat if you lose the monarchy. Sure. Like this feels like the a, a mill deck really would need to have a plan to make sure that it keeps that and that it can't let it go because how else is it going to get it back? You've got to be very, very defensive and paying that much attention to your defense might not be a regular part of what mill strategies are already doing. So that can still make it a little bit dicey. Well, and, and to do another comparison here, you know, Court of Grace, there's situations where like you might not care if the person's making four four angels, particularly if you're not in the lead and if you know if someone's sitting at like sixty life and they're kind of threatening, maybe you're okay with somebody making four four angels every turn if they're aiming them at that person and if you're mm-hmm. holding a board wipe or something. On the other hand, court of ambition you're just getting hit every time. Like there's no dodging that. There's no not caring about it because it might go at somebody else. That's just painful to you every time. So Court of Ambition might put a bullseye on your back just for running it in a way that the other ones don't as well. So that's kind of an interesting comparison there to Court of Grace in particular. Um, um, 
as well, just because it's it, it's gonna it changes how other players view that card. See, I I'm a big fan of Court of Bounty, the green one. Uh, Exploration is played in over sixteen thousand decks, almost seventeen thousand at this point, and, and it's having, expensive. It is, yeah, and that's that's because it's it's not a really a cheap card. It was reprinted in Double Masters recently, but those numbers are going up. So Court of Bounty being kind of a, an exploration that helps you draw extra cards at the end of your turn. And then if you just happen to still have the Monarch, you get to sneak a creature into play. I love that type of effect. That's, that's got the Timmy inside of me just thinking, <laughs> what deck can I put it in and how come it's not every single one of them? Um, so I'm all about the, the green Court of Bounty. Um, it stinks. Court of Ire, the red one, kind of seems to get the short end of the stick, as red often is is one to do. <laughs> um, but I, I like a lot of them. The only issue that I really have with these that I think would help them become more popular is you have to wait an entire turn cycle for to um, any of these to give you an effect because it all happens at the beginning of your upkeep. Which means you you play this, you get the monarch, you have to survive a turn cycle of somebody not taking the monarch back away from you to get the the souped up version of this effect. That's what I don't really like, just the timing of it. But as far as what these are going to do and the, the possibility of them, it I think it definitely has a lot of players thinking, how can I make this work? Because the effects are pretty powerful, especially, I think, especially the green one and the black one. I mean, if you have the monarch, six life or two cards, that's that's a pretty good chunk of both hand size and life totals. Yeah. Yeah, the, the black one in particular strikes me as a really great uh, thing to do if you are still playing in one of those, um, like Queen Marchesa obviously is going to want a whole bunch of monarchy cards because, I mean, she's just getting totally bolstered. And the Court of Ambition seems like a great finisher uh, for her deck especially. Um, but the other ones still make me kind of like... I don't know that they naturally fit into some uh, other strategies. Like, I, Matt, I know that you just rhapsodized about the green one, but I'm still kind of like, does green need this? Like, the tempo at which many green decks are already operating feels like this might possibly even be too slow. I, I don't think any of these are staples in their respective colors at all. Um, I do agree with you on that. I think if you have a deck that is doing anything within the, the the given strategy that the court is enabling, you definitely want to give a look at it. Yes, mill decks typically don't like to play kind of slower effects, but if you can get that and you can find a way to incorporate that, it'll be a fairly powerful card. The green one the same um torbrin decks if you're playing fire emancipation um and you're playing your dana mm. i mean you hate fire emancipation but you play it <laughs> um you're going to be able to triple that so i mean if you have the monarch with court of ire that's 21 damage with fire emancipation that is that's a lot of damage yeah and i think there's a lot there's a lot of oddball decks that's a mentioning torbrin is a good example matt but like yeah. court of bounty you know you when you tend to think of things like exploration you're thinking of green ramp decks where green is the focus, whereas I think Court of Bounty, I can definitely see showing up in like a five color dragon deck where like, you know, you're probably not worried about coming out of the gate super quick and and maybe land ramp or or landfall isn't your thing. But Mm. you've also got a bunch of like eight drops in that deck. And this is going to let you play an extra land here or there just as a bonus. And you're going to hold on to that once a dragon or two is out, you're going to hold on to it and then be able to start dropping those ginormous beaters for free. Absolutely. So I think that's where you're going to see it is these few decks where you're like, oh, that is really good in that kind of specific niche deck versus, you know, a Smothering Tithe kind of card where it's just in every white deck. And in Court of Bounty, when I first saw that, I instantly thought my Vivictus Asmati deck. Sure. um, That is all about... I mean, my curve starts at four, so Court of Bounty is just going to be perfect. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that deck is all about sneak attack and then just playing seven drops. So that's going to fit right in too, because if I can save three mana on one and then draw a card, I, I'm all aboard with that. See, what's kind of interesting is to observe some of the dynamics that exist on some of these court cards compared to some of the other monarchy cards that exist in the Commander Legends set as well, where stuff like Court of Bounty or the Court of Ambition that we've talked a whole lot about, they provide a very big promise, but you have to do other independent work to make sure that you can... Uh, keep that monarchy whereas like the red and the white one i don't feel like they're balanced super well for they feel very balanced for the limited format rather than um you know the actual general broader i don't know the red one's five mana i'm just like what why um but they also 
can provide their own form of protection to help you get the monarchy back, whereas like the black one does not do that, for example. And the matter of protection is what makes me like some of the other monarchy cards that we're seeing in the set just a smidge more. For example, Emberwild Captain. This is the four mana Jin Pirate 4-2. When it enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And whenever an opponent attacks you while you are the monarch, Emberwild Captain deals damage to that player equal to the number of cards in their hand. Like, I love that. Hello. That's really cool. That really disincentivizes people from coming your way. And that can really reward something like the Thantas we discussed earlier, or especially Queen Marchesa. Like this is a monarchy card that provides you with a cool degree of card advantage. And that also really genuinely asks your opponents the question, are you going to blink first? Do you really want to come at me? <laughs> are you going to attack me? Because if you've been drawing as many cards as we see some of those rich cards expertise players drawing, then it could actually really hurt. Like, is fighting over the monarchy worth it in this case? And that type of defensive capability, I really, really enjoy. I 100% want to put this in Valduck because, you, Joe, you <laughs> asked the question, are you going to attack me? Are we going to fight over this? In my Valduck deck, the answer always is yes. Um, you can take it. <laughs> I'm just going to attack you back, and I'm going to get it right back. So you won't ever have it for very long. You know, and one thing that's relevant on Emberwild Captain, and it's also true of Azure Fleet Admiral, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's on this list of cards we're looking at. They are pirates, and there's a finite amount of right. good pirates in the game. So if you're looking to, you know, hit 22 creatures in that deck, you're like, well, how many pirates are out there that actually do useful things? Those are useful things, like making yourself the monarch is a useful thing on a body in a tribe that doesn't have that many really good bodies. So that's something that's very relevant to both those two cards as well. Right. And that Admiral is kind of cool because he can't be blocked by creatures the monarch controls. So again, yeah. that's one of those cards that helps you get the monarchy back and kind of maybe helps you not necessarily keep it, but does help you keep it more in control, mm -hmm. uh, possibly. And like you said, it fits right into like, I don't know of a reason necessarily why a pirate tribal deck wouldn't want to play those, especially given the yeah. limited options. So even if some of these cards fill a niche, the niche can still be come commonplace in a way just by fact of like they fill that niche so well um a couple of other really cool protective uh monarchy cards jump out to me here too in fact i'm seeing a white and a green one that i think matt uh might really really enjoy question mark i do appreciate them um i don't know if i'm gonna put them in any decks i don't think i have a deck for them but i am glad that they're around um so archon of coronation is one it took me three maybe four times reading this card to fully understand what it does. Um, so <laughs> okay. it's four white white, that part's easy. It's a five five creature, it's a Archon creature type. Also still pretty easy with flying, self-explanatory. But when it enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And as long as you are the monarch, damage doesn't cause you to lose life. I had to process that more than I'm proud to admit, actually. Um, <laughs> but it is a nice defensive tool because it's able to make sure, you know, you're setting up your defenses and doing, you know, staying alive, really. Yeah. So you will still like you can lose the monarchy if yes. you are yes, attacked. You, you lose just wouldn't monarchy. lose any. Right. You just wouldn't lose any life for it. But also it does prevent against non-combat damage, too. So if someone tries to combat storm you for a whole lot, then you will be deflecting that. Um I, I do kind of look at this one and I'm like, I think I still prefer Protector of the Crown, though, because that one redirects all damage that you would take to itself. So it's like a double layer of keeping the monarchy within your grasp, as opposed to this one, which will still let you get away and it protects your life total instead of the card advantage. Sure, but Protector of the Crown can't go in your Crown the Dawnclad Archon Tribal deck like Archon of Coronation can. So uh, game, set, match, Joey. He got you, he, he's got you there, Joey. <laughs> He's got you there. I, I, I suppose he does. What about the green one, Matt? How are you feeling about this one? This one I'm a little torn on. So the green one is Don Glade Regent. It's five green green for an eight eight elk. That is one big piece of meat. <laughs> uh, so when Don Glade Regent enters the battlefield, you become the monarch. And as long as you are the monarch, permanents you control have hexproof. It's it's an interesting ability. It's kind of the archetype cycle where you get uh, hexproof for all of your creatures, uh, but this is all permanent. So it includes your lands, your your enchantments, everything. I'm not sure how to feel about this because it's still seven mana. It, it what's weird is that this is an this is an elk that cannot be turned into an elk by Oko <laughs> yeah. because it would give hexproof. So like I don't know how to compute that, you guys. Well, and you know to to do the conversion, seven mana in green is 
you know, three essentially. <laughs> so it's not the, the casting cost isn't that bad. That that is true. I mean, the fact that it comes in, it gives you a big body to to help you keep the monarch. Um, it's drawing you a card, and then it makes itself hexproof as soon as it comes in. I like that combination of things. I just this is another case of I just don't know if I have a deck for it right now. It, it feels like what you want to do in green is not be defensive. Like if you're going to spend seven man on a thing in green, you want to be just smashing somebody in the nose versus protecting your own stuff um, and drawing a single card off it. Yeah, I think it's a cool card that just maybe most green decks aren't going to be that interested in, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is kind of surprising. I, I feel like we might be underwriting that uh, hexproof ability a little bit. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, even Regal Behemoth, the numbers on Regal Behemoth, the most popular monarchy card currently in showing up in the 99s, even then, it was largely bolstered by the fact that it had a tribal component that was boosting its numbers with over a thousand Gishath decks wanting to play it because it had been errated into a dinosaur. So even then like the big green stompy and the protective element like the the, the benefit is still kind of uh, tinged a little bit there i guess um which is kind of uh not disappointing but curious i suppose um there, there are two more monarchy cards that uh, i feel like we definitely should address one of them being feast of succession a six mana minus four minus four to all creatures sorcery that also makes you become the monarch. Not a thing that we've seen a whole lot since usually it's like a creature that enters and then you become the monarch or an enchantment that enters. This one's just a spell. Like I take it, it's mine. And also all the creatures go away. Um, Again, not one that I feel like can be generally useful. It does feel like Queen Marchesa is really, really going to like it, but that's a unique effect for sure. I mean, so, so languish is played in less than 3,500 decks currently, and this is two more mana to become the monarch. So there's kind of a little bit of precedence for a, a, a direct crossover. I don't know if it's going to be that popular because people already don't like paying that much for yeah. a, a conditional board wipe. I don't think monarch has anything to do with this, this card's power level. The effect already isn't really terribly popular. Yeah, this just feels like a one of the cards that will be an absolute house in the draft environment. Right. Oh, yeah. But probably doesn't quite translate to Commander. All right. So then in that case, Dana, talk us through our final Monarch card. This one is actually competing with Marchese a little bit because this is another Monarchy card, Commander. We have uh, Jared Carthalian, True Hero, for uh, red, green, and white, three mana for a 3-3. Three, three. When Jared Carthalian, True Heir, enters the battlefield, target opponent becomes the monarch. You can become the monarch this turn, and if damage would be dealt to Jared Carthalian while you are the monarch, prevent that damage and put that many plus one counters on it. Now, Dana, so, he, he may be your hero, um, but he's everybody's heir. <laughs> um, it is, it is, he is a true heir, not the true hero. He's, um, yeah, he's very much the Fabio of magic. Basically. You've been holding out for a hero till the end of the night. <laughs> oh, but... my goodness. <laughs> I, I tease. Um, this is a really interesting card. This is the first thing we have that gives the monarch to somebody else. Yeah, it does really, it falls into that category of just like, let's try the monarchy strategy where we're forcing everyone else to maybe fight over it a little bit. And once you are able to actually clinch it for yourself, I mean, man, this thing with a blasphemous act sounds like a a whole lot of fun, but it's also not the kind of card that is necessarily going to show up in a whole lot of decks, just like we saw with Queen Marchesa. She really doesn't show up in a whole lot of decks herself either. So this would become much more of its own archetype, an archetype that I personally feel like might get overlooked just a smidge because of the sheer density of legendary creatures that showed up in Commander Legends. So even if this one's popular, it's still going to be popular in relativity. Um, So not necessarily something that's going to break the bank compared to Queen Marchesa, but an interesting one the less for sure it's its own archetype but it also does a unique thing among these monarch cards where it's encouraging you to run a bunch of monarch cards so you're able to snag that back from people really really easily Um, we Mm -hmm. talked before about how it doesn't really stack once you're the monarch you're the monarch for the most part you don't want a bunch of those cards in your deck that's not true here this is an effect where you want to have as many of those bullets available for your jared carthalian gun to get that monarch back whenever you need it 
So you guys, after having looked at all of these new monarchy cards and the numbers for the old monarchy cards, I'm kind of just wondering what your take is on how, you know, the nearly double the amount of monarchy cards, what that will do to EDH. Like, do you think that the monarchy might become more commonplace, more ubiquitous in games of EDH? Will these stay more niche? Dana, what do you, what, where are you falling? What do you think? I, I think it will become marginally more ubiquitous. I, I don't think you're going to see outside from um, Jared Carthalian that we mentioned, I don't think you're going to see people like consciously attempting to make Monarch part of their, their game plan. Um, it's just, we just got a handful of new cards that for various reasons are going to be good in various decks. So like right now, you'll occasionally see those cards pop up like Palace Jailer in a Blink deck or something that also happens to put the Monarch into the game or Thorn of the Black Rose in my Death Touch deck that happens to put the Monarch into the game. We just got a, you know, six or eight new cards that fill a similar void where they're good in someone's deck and they'll introduce the Monarch and that's it. I don't think you're going to see a rush of people specifically adding them just to get the Monarch. Gotcha. Matt, what are you thinking? Um, I, I think I'm going to agree with Dana here. Uh, I don't know if any of them are so specific that, like you, you just have to put the Monarch into any deck. Um, but a lot of them, I do like that there are now more options to being able to casually introduce the Monarch into any given game while also having interesting things and people kind of playing off of when you're the Monarch, you get this benefit. Um, Ember Wild Captain is kind of the, the, the big mm -hmm. key player in that thought process, for me at least. Um, I do like how they're just kind of marginally better upgrades for a few cards. Um, Fall from Favor is just a nice card that just taps down a creature, keeps it tapped down, and then you you become the monarch. Um, I like that type of effect because it's just going to make sure that, you know, Dana's Adelies can't attack me anymore. <laughs> um, and also I'm going to be drawing cards because of it. So it's just a nice... Uh, I like the mechanic. It, it's mm -hmm. just bringing things to the table that you don't always plan on. And I hope that they do continue to explore this space because I do think that uh, some of these effects, like, you know, you get this effect, but if you're the monarch, then it modifies a little bit. I like how they're playing in this space. So I, like I said, I, I hope that they continue playing around with it because I do think it opens up quite a few things that they can do with monarch specifically. Yeah, my my take on all of these is really that like it does feel as though it is enhancing the already dedicated monarch strategy. But at the mm -hmm. same time, like Dana mentioned with the pirate tribal, for example, like there's kind of no reason not to run those in any pirate tribal deck that you assemble from this point on. And there are a couple of more, you know, it's not just Admiral Beckett Brass anymore um, in to fulfill that role. And there are a couple of cards that do feel like they might become, you know, really sort of lock pieces in those niche places, which I guess has just kind of made me wonder now if there are, even if it is a, a you know, they're dedicated to a niche, are there enough of those niche places for it to still become somewhat commonplace? Um, and the answer, I think, is still probably leaning a bit more towards no. It still does feel like you have to be very, very intentional about putting these into your deck. But this also kind of gets me, uh, gets me thinking, like, even if these do get even slightly more popular, does that possibly create a feedback loop where people feel maybe encouraged to play it more often because they are seeing the mechanic more often or because they want to interact with the monarchy in more ways than just, oh, once it's in the game because my opponent A over there put it into the game, now I have to attack to try and get it. Does that maybe encourage them to put a monarchy card into their own deck, for example? If it does get to seen even a little bit more, would that have an effect on the numbers too? What do you guys think? Uh, I don't know if that will happen because we just don't have a, a density of those yet. Um, mm. I do I do think that since Conspiracy 2 was several years ago at this point, um, it's not really a, a recent set. Um, having this refreshed in the minds of players, I think, will help it more than anything. Um, a lot of people are going to be opening packs and seeing these Monarch cards and like, oh, that's kind of cool. I wonder what other cards have this type of effect. So they'll go to Scryfall or, or whatever and find more cards. I think just kind of refreshing everybody on the fact that the Monarch mechanic exists. I think a lot of people just forgot that it does. Um, mm. Or maybe they weren't even playing back then. That's another big thing, too, is we've had a lot of new players. And if that's the case and this is their first exposure to the Monarch mechanic, um, they're going to be doing those those same searches and finding new cards. So if anything, kind of uh, the, the, the discovered demand for Monarch cards 
being in Commander Legends will help the conspiracy cards in their popularity just because they know they exist now. Yeah. Or, you know, there's also the alternative where people can just play that new AC, the uh, the Simic Commander, and they just, you know, accidentally nudge a vase and then they draw 37 <laughs> cards on accident because that's what the Simic does. The only thing I will finally say here is I'm disappointed we didn't get a Monarch card where the uh, Monarch is determined by whoever wins the uh, Wishbone split. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, are you bringing it back to the turkey comment? Always. It's, it's oh, coming no. full circle. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, Let's put I some think cranberry with... on this episode then. <laughs> uh, now I'm, see, now I'm just getting hungry. Maybe that Feast of Succession <laughs> card will show up in my decks after all. There anyway, what I think we ought to do is call this episode to a close. Fellas, thanks so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H. I-M-U-S-5-5. Don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we also are streaming twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. We have awesome guests every single week, and the games, they're pretty enjoyable, too. So make sure you tune in for those every single Wednesday evening. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can find me on EDHREC, where I write articles. And you can find all of us at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. I also record another podcast, CMDR Central. You can hear me there once a week. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on both Twitter and on Facebook. If you have a question, you can also contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks once again to Josh LeQuay and the whole team at the Command Zone podcast for handling the post-production work on our podcast here. And of course, our thanks to our sponsors for the show. That's TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC to show your support for the show. Listeners, we would love to hear what you think about the Monarch mechanic and how its numbers might be shaped in the future, and we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>